This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. This morning, we are looking at Matthew chapter 7 as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, uh, verses 15 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word, a very sobering passage as we consider what's at stake. Father, we pray for the light of your Holy Spirit, for his help as we study these words. Lord, give us clear minds to focus and think about these things and pray that you would not only teach us, but feed our souls on your word. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As Jesus wraps up this Sermon on the Mount, he does so with an obvious concern for the spiritual well-being of those who hear him. Uh, From verse 13 and 14, which we looked at last time, encouraging them, commanding them to enter by the narrow gate to travel a more difficult way, but the way that leads to life, the way of following Christ, the way of discipleship, the way of obedience, the way of faith in Christ, uh, he now begins to warn us of particular danger that we might face along the way, or might even face standing at the entrance to that narrow gate, and on to the end of the chapter as Jesus warns his hearers that they not be deceived, that they make certain where they stand with God, because there will be those who are deceived. There will be those who think that they are right with God, only to be greatly disappointed, not to say distraught, on the last day, to those who think they're standing and yet are going to fall. And so it's absolutely critical in light of eternity, in light of what is at stake, that we understand our true position as it relates to God. Uh, and in fact, you, and I, you know and I know uh, that many today who would claim to be Christians, claim to be followers of Christ, have lives that in no way reflect that reality or believe Doctrines and teaching that in no way reflect the teachings that we find in Scripture. And so these things are absolutely critical. We must enter by the narrow way, which is Christ alone. He himself said there is no other way. 
and that way of discipleship that involves denying ourselves, that involves the pattern of life that the Sermon on the Mount presents, with the paradox, of course, that though it is a difficult way, a hard way, not an easy way, it is a joyful way, and is a way that not only ends in life, but is a way of life along the way. Well, then Jesus moves from verse 14, teaching about the narrow gate, to verse 15, this warning against false prophets, the dangers of being misled. And really, the passage divides very simply into two parts, the warning that Jesus gives us, and then also the test that Jesus gives us to evaluate and to put into effect the warning that he gives us. Well, first of all, the warning is stated very simply, verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Well, we see in the first place that Jesus does not speak of false prophets as though it's something that might happen, as though there's some slight possibility that somewhere along the way they might encounter someone who would teach them what is wrong. But rather, he assumes false prophets. Beware of false prophets who not might come to you, who possibly could come to you. What does he say? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You see, Jesus assumes the reality of false prophets, of false teachers, as a danger to his church, a danger to his people, and with good reason. You look at the Old Testament, and you see the problem of false prophets. We read one such passage in the book of Jeremiah earlier. There are other passages in Jeremiah as well. Jeremiah was uh, afflicted by those who countered his word, who made him out to be the liar, uh, who told the people not to listen to him, uh, false prophets who spoke the opposite of what Jeremiah said. Jeremiah, in fact, was a true prophet. God had sent him. God spoke through him. God told them to resign themselves to exile in Babylon, to make themselves at home there. And you read earlier, as we went through the passage in Jeremiah, uh, he, was, he was called a traitor. He was called a blasphemer. He was said to be wrong. He was called a false prophet. And so not only there, but through the Old Testament, you find uh, that uh, there were those who claimed to speak in the name of the Lord, who claimed to speak the word of the Lord, and yet did not. Not only a problem in the Old Testament, it was also a problem in the New Testament. In Jesus' own time, uh, Jesus could speak of the scribes and Pharisees saying in Matthew 14, verse 15, let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Speaking of others in his day, who themselves accused Jesus of deceiving the people. In the book of Acts, Paul could say to the Ephesian elders, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. You see, Paul himself knew the reality 
of false teachers, false prophets that plagued his ministry, that troubled the churches that he had planted, churches he had ministered to or wrote to. And then, of course, the passage that in the New Testament, 1 John chapter 4, that we read earlier, where John calls his readers to great uh, sobriety and vigilance regarding those who would teach them. Beloved, he says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then the test he particularly gives has to do with what they teach about Jesus. Every spirit, he says, that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. There was a movement afoot teaching in his day that would say that, well, Jesus was not truly human. He only seemed to be. He only appeared to be. Why would God become a man? Why would God take to himself flesh and bones? Obviously, it couldn't happen. Jesus only seemed to be human. John says, no. Anyone who says that Jesus has not come in flesh and bone is not speaking for God. And so a doctrinal test that he gives to them. And so Jesus assumes false prophets. The Old Testament pattern, the Old Testament history showed that was a problem. Jesus' own day was a problem. And certainly in uh, the church in the New Testament we read about it. But we've certainly seen that in the years and centuries since the days of the New Testament. That there have been false prophets, false teachers who have troubled the church. And God's providence, one good we could say that has come out of that, is as the church has addressed the problem of false teaching, false prophets, Uh, it has served to allow the church to define and sharpen its own understanding of what the scriptures actually do teach. We often say the Nicene Creed in our service, and it arose out of a controversy in the church over the nature of the person and work of Christ. And so much of the fine theology, uh, the precise work in defining what the Bible teaches uh, arises in church history as the church responds to those who were teaching what was wrong. So Jesus assumes false prophets. Now, he also describes here the deception that they employ. Uh, he says, they come to you in sheep's clothing. Which is another way of saying they look like part of the flock. Right? Right? If you have a, a, a pasture and the sheep are all out in the pasture, then the sheep look like sheep. If, if there's a wolf out there wearing a sheepskin, wearing sheep wool, wearing a sheep costume, it looks like a sheep out there. So when Jesus says that they come to you in sheep's clothing, what he's saying is that they're deceptive. They're slippery. That's not always the case when a false prophet arises. Sometimes he teaches things that are so outrageous, so nonsensical, that no one's fooled. Not for a minute. No one would accept those kinds of things that that he says. Uh, I remember someone came to campus when I was in college and was drawing a crowd out speaking and claiming to have been sinless since he was converted. Uh, A couple of us attempted to just give rise to the thought that pride itself might be a sin, but he was not interested in listening. He was interested in yelling, uh, so we didn't get very far. But such a claim to have been sinless not only counters our own experience as Christians, but it counters the, the teaching of Scripture itself. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Certainly there are false teachers of that stripe. Jesus is describing here those in sheep's clothing. 
those who look good. Those who, at least at first, sound orthodox. Those who talk about God. Those who mention the name of Jesus. Maybe talk about the resurrection. All kinds of things they talk about that, that sound good. They sound orthodox. Uh, Paul, in fact, already has warned us in Acts 20 that they can arise even within the church. Paul said, there will come from among your own selves men speaking twisted things. Oh, he's one of us, right? Can't be wrong if he's one of us. They look like sheep, talk like sheep. At least on an initial impression. Uh, Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians uh, that even Satan himself can disguise himself as an angel of light. You see, that's the problem. False teachers, at least initially, are deceptive. They're pleasing. They're pleasant. They seem to say all the right things. But then Jesus not only speaks of the deception that they bring, but also the danger. Because we're not playing games here. Look at what he says. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, the word has to do with their true being, their true nature, inwardly, they are, he says, ravenous wolves. What does a wolf do? Well, the wolf gets in and shreds the sheep. The wolf tries to take the sheep, to devour the sheep. And that's how Jesus describes them, ravenous. They're hungry. They have teeth. Their teeth may be disguised under the sheep's wool, but they have teeth nevertheless, and they have sheep in the crosshairs. And so Jesus assumes that the false prophets are a problem and will be a problem to the church, and certainly the scriptures and church history have shown that to be true. They are deceptive. They're dangerous. We are to, he says, beware of them. Be alert. Be on guard. Be vigilant. But how? What are we to look for? Well, Jesus not only gives us a warning, he gives us a test. He gives us something to look for. Uh, look at verse 16. Jesus says, you will recognize them by their fruits. And then he gives this analogy, this illustration. Um, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Well, of course not. Uh, well, every healthy tree bears good fruit. The diseased tree bears bad fruit. We know that. That's, that's our experience. And then he gives the, the flip side of it, the opposite. A healthy tree can't bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. In other words, he may come to you in sheep's clothing... But he can't keep his true nature hidden forever any more than a wolf out there among the flock. He may have his sheep costume strapped on, so outwardly he looks like a sheep. But inwardly, he cannot conceal forever his true nature, that he is, in fact, not a sheep, but a wolf. Uh, D.A. Carson, in his uh, lectures on the Sermon on the Mount, Speaking about Jesus' tree analogy, he says, In Jesus' day, everyone knew that the buckthorn had little black berries, which could be mistaken for grapes, and that there was a thistle whose flower from a distance might be mistaken for a fig. But no one would confuse the buckthorn and the grape once he started to use the fruit to make some wine. No one would be taken in by thistle flowers when it came to eating figs for supper. Now, what did the analogy say? Well, what it does tell us is that what may not be immediately apparent becomes apparent over time and sometimes only 
over time. It does, after all, take time for a tree to produce the fruit that it's going to bear. And so it may take time before a church, before the church, is able to discern the error in false teaching. By definition, it may not be easy. The initial impression is sheep's clothing. This is a sheep, but only over time does the wolfishness begin to appear. Well, what kind of fruit? What is Jesus talking about here? Well, first of all, let's talk about the fruit that would show up in terms of the person himself, the character. Uh, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit, in Galatians chapter 5, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the evidences of the presence of the Holy Spirit of God in a person's life, in every Christian's life. Not uh, perfectly, but nevertheless there, uh, in some manifestation, some evidence of it. We wish it were more. We pray for more of it. Pray for the Spirit to bear His fruit in our lives. We want to cultivate that fruit in our lives. But the fact is, if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is in you, His character, His nature, inevitably will begin to show in your lives. But Jesus uses the same idea of fruit here with the false teacher. His character. If he is not a true teacher, if he is a false prophet, then more likely than not, the falsehood of his doctrines, if not the unregenerate nature of his heart, will begin to show. False theology, bad doctrine, leads to bad living. And made all the worse if his nature is unregenerate. It is possible to have a regenerate person who is teaching falsehood, who is teaching what is wrong, at least on some doctrines. But if you combine that with a nature that itself is unregenerate, and that's what Jesus seems to be describing here, then that nature cannot be hidden. Motivation. What is the motivation of a false prophet? Is it the well-being and good of those whom he would teach? Well, in the case of the wolf that Jesus describes, more often than not, the motivation of the false prophet is self-serving to, uh, to gain for himself, whether it's material things, wealth, or maybe even just control over other people. So we look at the person himself, his character over time. We look at the person himself, his motivation. What is it that drives him? What is it that moves him to do what he's doing? But then also, part of that fruit is not only the person himself, but also his teaching. Uh, what is the teaching here? Well, Jesus is assuming, and in our day it's a pretty big assumption, that there is a standard of truth. You know, people tend to think of morality and also, interestingly, theology as whatever you want it to be. Whatever's true for you is true. In other words, nothing is true. It's all a matter of personal preference. Uh, they, the, the idea that in not only in terms of morality, how we should live, but also in terms of theology, that there is that which is true and therefore that which is wrong and false, uh, that that's a foreign idea. Very much so in our day, but certainly true in, in Jesus' days. It's part of human nature to make ourselves our own gods and decide what we want to be true. That's what Eve did. She set herself up as the judge between the Lord and the serpent. So there's nothing new about it, but it is quite prevalent in our day. 
the idea that there is that which is theologically true, that which is theologically false. But Jesus assumes that, that there is a standard, that what God has spoken is true, and that which is opposite that, that which contradicts that, is therefore false. Saw that in the passage in, in, in Jeremiah. And so the false prophet may be known over the long run, especially by his teaching. Sometimes it's what he says. There are those certainly who teach things that are uh, simply contrary to Scripture. However, probably more often than not, especially at first, it's more a matter of what is not said. This is one way that uh, theological position or movement known as neo-orthodoxy captured the, uh, the churches in the 20th century, the Southern Presbyterian Church. What happens is you have a man who comes into the pulpit of a church and he says all the right words. He speaks about Jesus and the love of God and the cross and the resurrection. But when you press him about the resurrection, did Jesus bodily come out of the grave on the third day? Well, no, the, the resurrection is a metaphor for new life, new birth. Well, you see, he speaks about the resurrection, but it's what is not said that is at stake. Is the cross where Christ himself died as the substitute in the place of the sinner. Well, no, it's a, it's a demonstration of the love of God and how much he wants to be reconciled to all people. And so you see, it's not so much sometimes what is said, it's what is left unsaid. Um, does the teaching call us to discipleship as it is presented in the Sermon on the Mount, which is at once supernatural and difficult, impossible, and yet at the same time, the calling to which Jesus has called us? Or is it a teaching that promotes your own comfort and ease, that God is here to serve you, that he is at your beck and call? What is left unsaid? You see, very often that's the test. That's what we must find out. And that's one thing that makes it so difficult. What is left unsaid? Also, another way of testing the fruit of the teaching. Is it biblical truth in biblical proportion? You see, often false teaching, cults and so forth, take a biblical truth and make it absolute or make it overwhelm other truth though it's not the only way to preach, one of the advantages in preaching through books of the Bible consecutively is it allows biblical truth to be presented in biblical proportion so that the proportion matches more or less that in which we find it in, in, in Scripture. You see, you can take one particular truth and, and blow it all out of proportion to the rest of Scripture, the analogy of Scripture, comparing scriptural truth with scriptural truth, and be just as wrong as if you taught something totally outside of, of Scripture. And so these are some of the ways we evaluate the fruit, the, the, the character and motivation of the person himself, and the, the teaching, what is said, what is not said, the proportion in which it is said. These are ways that we evaluate uh, the, the truth or the falsehood of that which we hear. And so that's the test that Jesus gives. Now, we've seen the warning, heard the warning, we've seen the test. I want to close with a few applications here just to kind of put this down on a, on, on a, on in terms of what we need to, to be about to apply what Jesus says. First of all, there is no substitute 
and be, to beware against false teachers. There is no substitute for knowing the scriptures. And there is no way to know the scriptures other than the hard work of reading them and studying them. How well do you know your Bible? If you do not know it well, then you are prey for the wolves. We need to know the scriptures. We need to know what the Bible says. If we don't, then we could be led astray. You say, well, the preacher knows. I can just ask him. Well, if you were Roman Catholic, I'd say go for it. But you are a Protestant, and it is your duty to know the word of God for a reason which I will tell you in just a minute. Know the scriptures. Know church history. Malcolm Muggeridge, the newspaperman, said news is old things happening to new people. And it is. I haven't lived that long, but I've lived long enough to see there's a great deal of repetition in the news. Barbara and I kind of like to laugh when we get, you know, the Gwinnett Daily Post and it's got the next story of the person who was found with 50 cats in their house. You know, I mean, it repeats. You know, news of news is they talk about the news cycle. I'm not sure what that refers to, but it is cyclical. It goes around. It's the same stories with new people. Same things happening to new people. Well, that's true of heresy. That's true of false teaching. There's nothing new under the sun. Study church history. Study the seven ecumenical councils of the early church that met to deal with false teaching regarding the Trinity, regarding Christ, regarding the Spirit. These things, and you'll be equipped to deal with the Jehovah's Witnesses who are teaching the same things, the cults, the false teaching in our day. There's nothing new under the sun. Know the Scriptures. No church history, especially the, uh, the ancient church heresies, which new heresies are those heresies with new names, new forms, new faces. No theology. Every one of you is a theologian. The question is, is your theology biblical? The moment you begin to think about God, you are a theologian. Not a professional trained one, but nevertheless, you are doing theology. The moment you think about the church... You are thinking theology. The moment you begin to think about yourself, you are thinking about theology. Because the Bible addresses all of these things. So I encourage you to be a good one. To know biblical theology. Read the Westminster Confession of Faith. You'll learn a lot. It'll bless your soul. Read uh, a a good contemporary book of theology. uh, Kind of a classic and one that is readable and concise is uh, Lewis or Louis Burkhoff's uh, Summary of Christian Doctrine, which is a, very much a condensation of his large systematic theology. Read that, too, if you can, but something like the Summary, it's a small book, you can get it as a paperback. Uh, but, but be aware of theology. Know what not only is historical Orthodox Christian theology, but our Reformed and Biblical distinctives. Know theology. And the fourth, exercise discernment. There is that which is true, that which is false, that which is right, that which is wrong. We are not naive. We are not to be naive. We are not to be gullible when it comes to things of Christ, when it comes to what the Bible teaches. We need to exercise discernment. And this is why I say that you are Protestants. You are to know the word, and you are to sift and evaluate what I say by your own knowledge and study of the Scriptures, and so emulate the Christians in Berea who sifted what Paul was saying to them by the Scriptures to see if what he was saying was true. And they were commended for it. They were described as more noble 
for it. Now, certainly, if Paul himself was subject to being evaluated by the Scriptures, I should be as well. Do not believe what I say because I say it. I hope you trust me. I certainly make it my effort to preach what is scriptural and biblical and in accord with the confession because I believe the confession to be a statement of what Scripture teaches. But don't accept it on my authority. Accept it on the authority of Scripture. You need to exercise discernment. And this is all the more important in our day because of how much more access we have to teaching both good and bad with the Internet. Same truth, same falsehoods, but just a much quicker and wider availability than they had in Paul's day or 500 years ago. It's a blessing to be sure to have access to so much good teaching, but you have to exercise discernment and be able to filter out the false teaching and the bad teaching. Well, in the words of the old Amy Grant song, you've got to know who to, who not to listen to. And to do that, you have to know the word of God. Jesus assumes false prophets, so should we. You need to be on guard. Not everything that's woolly is a sheep. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the practical and realistic uh, point of view that the Scriptures have. And certainly, Father, we know with the hindsight not only of the Scriptures but of the years of church history since Jesus spoke these words of the danger that false teachers can do, not only to the peace and purity of the church, but to the souls of people. Father, we would not be led astray. We pray for wisdom. We pray to be led by your Spirit. We pray that you would keep us, keep this church, keep the PCA, keep your church faithful to the solid truths of Scripture. For we ask it in Christ's name and for his sake and for the sake of his church. Amen.